Andre Cronier is a serial contract uh, entrepreneur and developer. Um, Andre Cronier, welcome to the Ethereum Cat Herders podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I have to admit, like, um, that's that's my go-to nowadays is if I have to try and get a bunch of multi-signers to actually sign something, as I always tell people, I need to go herding cats. So ah, I, well. I, I used to think it's bad trying to get coders to do something, but it's a lot worse trying to get multi-signers to actually coordinate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a signer in a multi-sig, I think I can also relate from the other side. Yeah. <laughs> Especially time sensitive stuff. You're just like, yeah, that's not gonna happen. We we might as well skip this. Like let's <laughs> let's let's rather write a contract that can do the time sensitive stuff and then we'll transfer <laughs> to the contract and then someone can just execute there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. All right. Yeah, no, um, that's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. Um, I'd say you're probably most famous in this space for smart can- contract innovation, which is what I really wanted to focus on in this conversation. Um, rapid prototyping, groundbreaking ideas. Um, how did you be like? How did you get into that? I guess role of rapid prototyped kind of innovative smart contracts. Well, so so I mean, I um, even even before I got into blockchain and things, I was always in the rapid prototyping space. So so I always worked in R and D teams where you know our focus was let's test this idea, let's see if it works, let's see if it doesn't. So so I've always had that that mentality slash mindset of that's how we develop. You know, um, move quick, break things, see what works, see what doesn't, quickly move away. Um, because we've we've wasted a lot of product cycles, you know, without trying to test when you just kind of develop into a vacuum. Um, and I mean, with, with dev, especially, it's very easy to just infinitely develop, you know, there's a big difference between good code and product. Um, product code is often really, really shit because it's something that was rushed as a POC to get out of the window. Good code often doesn't work because, you know, it's, it's over-engineered to the point where it's beautiful code, but it's no longer a product. So anyway, I always had that alignment. Um, but my first, my very, very first time working with Solidity specifically and building smart contracts was actually the very first few lines of code I wrote for Yearn. Um, so back then, you know, I'd, I'd been using uh, Ethereum and um, I, I was actually developing on the Cosmos SDK stack at that time. Um, I was building pretty much everything I'm building today in Solidity-based smart contracts, but in, in on Cosmos SDK in the Golang language. Um, mm. so, so a lot of the concepts I'm using today is actually from stuff I did back then. Um, but yeah, so so with Yearn, you know, like like I was like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know I started it because I was manually moving between these protocols to hunt yield. Um, and I got to a point where I was just like, Andre, you're a coder. Why are you doing this manually? Write a script to do this. And originally, I started off doing that like off-chain as just some DevOps script. But I hate DevOps with a passion. Like I'm so bad at it. My servers always run out of the space, or they go down, or some cron job doesn't execute, or some process manager fails. Like I am cursed when it comes to DevOps, which is another reason why smart contracts really appeal to me because you're. I get to write the code, but other people do all the DevOps for me. I mean, that's a that's a phenomenal trade-off, you know? Because I mean, nodes are doing all the DevOps, Infura is doing the DevOps, Etherscan's doing the DevOps. Huh. I I have no DevOps, you know. I I write my little script, I deploy it, and I forget about it. Um, so so the environment just fit really well for me. Um, and I mean, I came from 
well, when I started, I was doing C, C++, then moved a little bit into Java, and then moved into JavaScript, then moved into Node.js. Um, so Solidity was just a very natural fit for me as well, because syntactically, it's a, it's very similar. Um, Style-wise, it's very similar, so it was easy to pick up and start. Um, learning all of the nuances of the compiler, that was definitely a, a, a let's say, challenge. Um, oftentimes sitting there where you're just like, I don't understand why this is doing what it's doing, but you know, that's just, that's just a, a, a nuance of the environment. Um, but you learn them quickly and, and um, then things get interesting. So yeah, but the first lines of code I wrote was for Yearn. Um, that's when I started learning how to actually interact with these systems. Um, I mean, obviously I had been a coder for almost a decade before that, that helps. Um, and you know, you, it's, it's, it's a language that's very easy to pick up. Um, but yeah, you know, so, so the nice thing, I, I think a good thing about me starting doing it on Yearn is it forced me to learn everything else, you know, cause, cause Yearn is a, is a, is a, it sits on top of other depths, you, you know, yeah. yeah, it's an aggregator. So, so I had to learn DYDX, Uniswap, Compound, Aave, um, so many that were back then that some of them aren't even around today. Um, and the only way you learn is by digging through their code, you know, and, and often you go into a GitHub repo and you're like, well, what I'm seeing here isn't what's happening on chain and you get the on-chain contracts. You're like, this is two completely different environments. So it got to a point where, you know, I, I almost do everything on chain. Like, like I very seldom mm -hmm. even reference GitHub anymore because if it's not a contract on chain, it's, it's, it's almost not worth looking at anymore. Um, but yeah, so, you know, learned a lot from looking at other systems, other engineers, um, seeing patterns I like, seeing patterns I didn't like. Um, and then from there, the rest just kind of started clicking, you know, because everything was, or well, everything I've built, I, I, I always run into this loop where I'm like, no, this is too easy. If it's this easy, someone else would have built it already. Why has someone else not built it already? Because mm -hmm. I remember with year now, the, the main thing there for me was just I wanted to learn as well, because I think Staked, um, they also had a yield aggregator back then, Staked at US, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't even but, remember that. But, Amazing. Well, well yeah. the, uh, I, I think a big reason why, why they didn't get as big an adoption is because their positions were structured like a normal database. You know, it wasn't fungible positions. Like it wasn't like the mm -hmm. Y token where it's Y die that you can then exchange and has tertiary markets and stuff like that. I think that made a big difference. It was, it was non-fungible positions, but it wasn't non-fungible tokens. You know, so so they they yeah. might have been a little bit before before their time. Mm -hmm. um, but but there was nothing else. So so I ended up building Yearn, and then while. Yearn started growing and becoming more and more successful. You know, the harvests had to be run to actually go grab tokens and then sell it and trade it or do whatever it does with them. Mm -hmm. um, and that got to the point where I started having to write off-chain scripts that actually monitors these contracts and then executes it. And now this circles back to the point at the beginning, I hate DevOps so much. And here I was doing DevOps. So I was, and, and you know, at the time I was doing a lot of research into like arbitrage and liquidation bots um, because that's the area I was focusing at the time um, and like MEV bots and all of these things. And, you know, there's, there's all of these creatures in the dark forest that just constantly do work. So that's when the Keeper idea came up where I was like, okay, but surely 
I can just then post these jobs and one of these monsters swimming in the sea or they're just going to come do it for me. Um, and, and it was surreal to see originally, you know, because I remember when we just released Keeper, like, like the, there wasn't even documentation yet, but we attached a few jobs and, and within minutes, not even hours, those jobs would start wow. being executed. And like it, it was, it was I, I honestly don't know how to describe it other than surreal, you know, because you're watching this contract, you refresh it a few times and there the job was executed. Like in that time, someone saw that it was deployed. They read the code to actually understand what's the job they need to do. Now, now we try to keep it lightweight. You know, you just call work and then you get rewarded. So it's not mm -hmm. super difficult to figure out, but, you know, still someone went through the effort it. and actually do those jobs. Yeah. And you're, now, all of a sudden, I didn't have to do any more on-chain work. Um, I didn't have to write any more scripts. I shut down all of my servers. I don't have to do any of that stuff anymore because you are all these people I've never met, systems I've never interacted with that are now handling all the upkeep in my environment. And, you know, that ended up getting smarter and smarter. Like now it uses um, things like Flashbots and Eden and there's private transactions and there's block ordering, you know, so so it's definitely evolved a lot. Um but again, it came from a very simple idea, which was just like, you know, why, 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 if people are doing arbitrage, aren't there people to do upkeep on chain? So, so same concept. So, and and that worked out obviously um, cool as well. Um, Fix Forex is probably the most involved one of the lot, uh, but but that also again comes from a very simplistic concept um, because I was doing a lot of work with Iron Bank at the time, um, which is sort of Yearn's own. Um, lending service, I guess you can call it for protocol to protocol lending. Um, mm. And, and I, I got to thinking, but like, how is borrowing different than minting? You know, either way, if you look at something like, like DAI, right? Like you, you're, you're, you're providing EFIS collateral and you're borrowing mm. DAI. Now there's no difference between me providing that collateral and minting it, or it being on a lending platform and me providing collateral and borrowing it. The only difference is when I borrow it, that supply is already on the lending platform. So I was like, okay, but I can just combine lending and minting, uh, borrowing and minting into the same step. And then you can borrow if there's available or you can mint if there isn't available. And it's still the exact same solution, you know, because liquidation still happened the same. Um, interest rates still happen the same. And, and the nice thing is then it's dynamic, you know, it doesn't even have to be set by a protocol because it's based on the supply and demand of the current of a assets um, but as, as far as everything that i've designed go that's probably the most in depth from a sort of code level architecture level but again you know very simplistic conceptual idea um, and the new one that we're launching now is is even more simplistic like like it's it's I, I, I don't want to spoil too much, you know, but like it's an existing code base with basically one line change. Like, like there's just one little bit of mathematics that change uh -huh. and the entire outcome of the protocol changes. Um, and it's fascinating to see, you know, um, but, but like my main thing, and, and that's why I like to stick with the rapid prototyping as well is because it's, it's about what's the minimum amount of code I need to change to change the effect of this outcome. Um, but like, so it's, uh, I, I know I'm going on a tangent. Sorry. I, I know we have a no, set of questions, but, but like one, one, one the thing questions to... are just suggestions. <laughs> They're a way to make a conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. One, one, one thing that's been a challenge, um, and I haven't really figured out ways to deal with this is, is, you know, back when, when for the lack of a better word or description back when I was more unknown, um, it was more fun 
to prototype actually um, mm. because you know I, I could take more risks i could play around more um, i could experiment more um, nowadays there's just so much weight on everything i deploy and everything i do that you know that i'm 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 almost and i've spoken to other builders as well who go through the same thing you know where where they're almost in the space of paralysis where like you're too afraid to deploy to test just because of what might go wrong mm. um and i'm still in that space you know like it takes me weeks now to do something that i usually would have done in a few minutes just because i i, I lament over it i go over the code a thousand times i relook i write new tests i you know give it to the same audit company five times like i look for six different auditors to go through it it's just it's just, it's scary it's so 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 scary um and, and I think that stifles a lot of potential innovation we see from the existing brands, you know, because Compound, Compound to me is a perfect example. I mean, Compound came out with the concept of, you know, this aggregated lender and how to really yeah. change lending. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I assume they haven't really been trying to develop anything new just because, you know, they're, they're sort of, this this staple in crypto you know they're safe you know their code doesn't really change it's good to go put your assets there but you know at the same time if they now release something new and and anything goes wrong it doesn't matter what it is anything goes wrong people lose mm -hmm. faith in the whole system mm -hmm. and and i often see it when when i start a new experiment so so the one thing i did was um the stable credit experiment which which i'm still busy with but um i i did my v1 and my v2 launch and i even capped it and i even made it impossible for people to ape into it. And it was like at, at like a $20,000 limit or something. Mm. But even from that, you know, people did lose money because they didn't understand that it was a stable system. So they thought they're buying the token and it's going to moon, but other people ended up then minting the token and selling it into them for profit because that's what you're going to do. Um, and, and that caused backlash, you know, that, that, that caused backlash even for Yearn and for other projects that I've either built or um, moved away from or built and still actively maintaining. Um, the, the, the eminence thing really opened my eyes. Like, like what happened there yeah. till today was a shocker to me. Um, like I, it, it, it filled me with so much fear and trepidation for deploying new things that there's there's i mean i if i can show you my whiteboard here there's probably a list of about 18 items that that i'm just i'm not willing to test it anymore just because there's there's too much risk involved and i haven't figured out a way to mitigate those risks you know um mm. but yeah like it's i think so it's it's a lot I more fun pick up. to prototype it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, if I, if I could maybe pick up from there. So, I mean, one of the phenomenon that we see kind of in the, the crypto Twitterverse is a lot of people choose to go Anon as builders. And I have a suspicion that no one's, I don't know if anyone can really confirm, but like, especially in the MEV space, where a lot of the Twitter accounts really churn very fast, like people who are like the MEV like explainers and whatnot kind of disappear kind of frequently. Um, I get a bit of a feeling that there are probably people cycling accounts. Um, have you thought about like maybe going Anon or having like burner Anon accounts for deployment? So, so uh, you know, back when I started, people weren't anonymous. Um, everyone was doxxed. Um, we all had doxxed accounts, you know, like, like it was a much 
smaller, much more tightly knit community, if I can say that. Not that it's mm-hmm. not, no, no, it was tightly knit, full stop. Like I wanted to add a qualification that now it's, it's, it's just different, but no, it was just mm-hmm. like everyone knew everyone. There were like probably 10 of us actually building and, you know, those 10 ended up building pretty much all of the protocols you see today. Um, so, so, so because I was doxed, you know, like after Yearn, everyone already knew who I was. Um, and like at that time, I didn't want to really change my process flow because, because another thing, you know, back when I started developing, we didn't have the tooling we have now. Um, yeah. we didn't have things like Brownie, Hardhead, Ganache, all of these tools that make it really, really easy to now write test suits and fork mainnets and do all of these things. None of those existed. So, so like I had a, I had a very bespoke and custom setup to run everything and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was designed for the Ethereum mainnet. So, so when I was continuing what I, what I've always been doing, which is prototyping and, you know, experimenting, trying to like do basic innovation. Um, I kept doing that via my existing setup because it wasn't as, as built out as it is now. And, um, you know, then eminence happened and that, that was really my big backlash because that was the next thing I did after. Um, and, and at that point I was like, here I can go and none. But thinking about that, right? Like I've, I've already received kind of the worst you can go through in the space at that point. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd gone through all the death threats. I'd gone through like probably six months of depression because I had caused people to lose money. Um, add on to that, you know, constant terrorizing, name calling threats, you name it. I mean, it's a shitty space to be in, but I'm told all of social networking is that way. So I'm just going to believe it and go with it. But um, dark times. But point being, I got out of that. And now I was like, okay, so so what do I gain if I go and non? So if I go and non at this point, fine. If something bad happens again, I can just throw that account away and I forget about it. Um, the flip side to that is I, I have like weight. I have renown. I have prestige. And I can use that to still help future protocols or if something goes right or et cetera. So, so mm-hmm. that was just a cost-benefit analysis to me at that point. And I realized that I, I lose more than I gain by going anonymous at that point. Um, mm. And so I just decided I'm just going to stick to it. But if, if I were to give, and, and I do give this advice to anyone new, I know coming into the space, I immediately tell them, set up anonymous accounts. Don't put your real name and stuff out there. And even if you do put your real name and stuff out there, make sure there's nothing, you know, about your phone numbers, your living residences, your, your family, anything, you know, because you know, all of those things become a target. All of those things end up being threatened. Um, and, and especially if you're going to launch a token, you know, because I don't, I, don't, I don't care what your project is. I don't care what that token is. Eventually... It's going to go through a market cycle. It's going to have a drawdown. When that happens, people are going to blame you. They're going to lash out. They're going to attack. They're going to threaten. Um, it's part of the cycle. But, you know, like, because yeah. the one thing that got me was when um, friends and family started getting, like, threats and stuff. Oh, um, uh-huh. That, you, you know, if I get it, I, I can brush it off. It's fine. I can deal with it. It's not a problem, especially after the thousandth one you've received, you, you kind of get chill with it. But, but seeing other people get that, not being able to deal with it, and that's people you care about, that, that messes you up. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, definitely, um, if I were to start fresh today, 100% would go and non. 
Um, but due to my sort of path, I've walked till here. Um, I, mm. I just, I, I don't see the, the benefit. Mm, I understand. Um, eminence has come up a couple of times. Uh, I remember it very vividly in real time. Um, but in case there are listeners who aren't familiar with Eminence, would, would you mind would you mind describing that project a bit? Yeah, so so the Eminence project itself is actually still running. We're still considering a, a rebrand there. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So so I mean, back back then, you know, NFTs weren't a thing. GameFi wasn't a thing. None none of that stuff existed yet. And mm -hmm. and I wanted to start introducing that into the ecosystem because I always thought there's a nice match between the two. Yeah. Um, and and the the ones that were sort of starting up were all closed environment, so so they were building their own stuffs for themselves. So so I wanted to show people what's doable. So so I started looking for for sort of abandoned and or unfunded projects that I could get my hands on, um, to see how I can architecture it so that all of the all of the base components are complementary to each game. So what I mean with that is you know if you have a a sword in the one game then and maybe that's a rpg based game where it's an actual item on your character that gives you stat i wanted mm. you to be able to then export it and import it into um in into our you know um, trading card game and then that's a buff card you can use and then i want you to export that and import it into our um, triple triad game which you can then use that as a stat based item or a buff you know to, to show people mm -hmm. that that that's what these nft items are supposed to be you know it's 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 the metaverse only works if we all build over the same set mm -hmm. um so so that was the original start and behind that i wanted to have a a crypto focused economy and that crypto focused economy was based around you know the 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 big communities the link marines some um, synthetic spartans um ava specters these these things um and each one to have sort of their own little mini economy. Um, so, so while, because because game dev cycles are long. Um, I mean, those guys are still yeah. building out those games. It's it's much longer than I actually originally expected, but that's fine. Um, so while they were building that, I kind of wanted to front run the parts I can build, which you know is like the the NFT part and the economy parts. So so mm -hmm. I had started building out those. Tools now. Now I work very closely with a with a close friend of mine, Anton. Um, and at the time, the way we worked, and we still actually work this way, we just change the accounts we use so people can't see the the accounts we're deploying from. But he does all of my my web work, and I do the on chain smart contract work. Even even before we got into blockchain, he was my web dev. I was the back end dev. So mm. kind of natural fit. So, so I would do my contracts. I would deploy them on chain. He would start integrating his UI. Now, as he's integrating, he normally finds some issues or faults or flaws, or he needs a new public method to expose some value he needs for his UI. And, and we go back and forth like this. So mm -hmm. I deploy, he tests a little bit, he gives me feedback, I do some updates, I deploy again, and we do the cycle. Um, and you can see, you know, in, in all of my previous developments, Yearn, Eminence, everything I've built, really, it's it's the same pattern. There's there's these bunch of like 50%, 60%, 80% prototypes sitting on chain that people can interact with. Now, on, on this day, uh, I, I, I made a few mistakes I'm happy to acknowledge. Number one is I deployed the contracts and Anton went through his usual stuff. But now at this point, what I should have done 
is I shouldn't have actually used a real cryptocurrency. I should have like just made a fake token, minted a, an unlimited supply for myself, given half of it to Anton, half of it to myself. Um, that would have been a bit, that's something I do nowadays. Like even nowadays when I test my systems, like I'll actually take the tokens I want to use, I'll mint my own version of it, give it to myself. So I know other people can't interact with it, which I which mm. is already a bit of a stopgap. So definitely something I learned back there. But anyway, back then the stuff used die. I deployed it. You could put DAI into the system and then you could get these sub-economy tokens that were meant for each one of these different factions that so that you know they, they each have value against each other and you could convert that for the NFTs and the tradable cards and not necessary to go into all of that detail, but anyway. So and and I, I thought that was it. So so anyway, so deployed the last stuff. Um, it was like eight, nine o'clock in the evening. I went off to bed. Um, while I was lying in bed, I got an email um, and the designers had finished the, the first concept art for the logos mm-hmm. for the different teams, which I thought looked really cool. And I tweeted it because it looked really cool. Okay, mm-hmm. mistake number two, I should have made it clear to people, hey, concept art for an upcoming thing, not yet live. Mm-hmm. Made the mistake, went to sleep. I, I, I... I got up probably three, four hours later. Um, one thing you get used to is not sleeping a lot in the space. Um, and I remember a message from Anton saying that like, there's there's millions or something in the contract. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I went to go check. And there was, I think at the time, something like 15 or $60 million in the contract. Um, yeah. And, and, and I saw I saw the hack. Because as I'm watching the thing, I refreshed because I thought it might have been a bug. And after I refresh, there's like 10 million in the contract. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on here now? And I refresh again and the contract's empty. I actually saw that happening in real time. But Mm. at that point, I didn't realize what was happening. Um, I I just woken up. I, I was like dazed and confused. I didn't understand why there's that much money in the contract. And now all of a sudden, there's no money in the contract. Um, I actually only realized it was an exploit after I saw other people on Twitter mentioned that the contracts got drained. And I was like, now I'm trying to put everything together and I'm trying to piece what the hell happened. And anyway, the, from other people's perspective, so not from my perspective, what they saw was contracts being deployed by my deployer account. And they saw, hey, here's the latest contract. And hey, this contract hasn't been updated in over an hour or whatever. And hey, here's this tweet that just came out that's related to this contract. This is probably another surprise launch like Wi-Fi. And mm. people went in crazy and you know everything else. 60 million, I think, is the total damage. 8 million was returned by the exploiter to myself. Um, till today, I don't know why, but I'm happy because you know, rather 8 million than 16 million in losses. Um, and you know, I, I, I still carry that. Like, like I have so many people that honestly believe as they like to call that I'm some rug puller slash exploiter slash something that go out of their way to try and post about, you know, all of the rugs I've pulled and these kinds of things. And, and (laughs) now, Mm. now I'm going off on a little bit more of a personal tangent, but, but now having gone through that i tried as much as possible to help other people that have gone through it because like i had experienced it i went through a 
a, like I said, like for six months after that, I think I didn't touch anything. Five, six months, I didn't touch anything. I didn't do anything. I tried to get away from crypto. I was like, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm finished. Um, because I just couldn't, you know, like, like the, there was this, this psychological trauma that goes with that stuff. But, but point being, I did manage to get myself through that. I did manage to create coping mechanisms. And when I saw it happening to other people, my first instinct is, okay, I now need to teach them how to deal with this. I need to teach them how to get through with this. So, so since then, a lot of what sort of Yearn's immediate response team, because back then I was still heavily involved with Yearn, because uh, we were still in that initiation phase. So a lot of what we were good at was, you know, not, not so much preventing the exploit, because it happens. Um, and often you, you know, like if, if you could pr predict it, it's not going to happen. It's that simplistic. So an exploit that happens is always one that wasn't predicted. That straightforward. Yeah. Um, but at least we had created an environment where we can create them, you know, handle it in terms of, okay, what should you be posting on social media? What shouldn't you be posting? Like, like what can you do? What can't you do? Um, what is the possible or immediate actions you can do? And, and also a lot of psychological counseling, you know, like just helping the guys like, look, this happens. There's nothing you could do. Like, um, even even it, if, if it was audited, obviously, cool, great. But, you know, other times, um, it, it's just trying to create this comfort environment. But now in doing so, I ended up helping a lot of teams that got exploited. You know, Pickle got exploited, Cover got exploited, Acropolis got exploited. Like, like all of these teams that, that had to go through this stuff. And, and, and Cream, obviously, as well. Number one, I mean, it's a long list. Hmm. And now because... I was involved, these exploits started to get attributed to me as well. Like, even though, you know, I didn't write a line of code there, I wasn't involved, like I didn't, I arrived after the fact, like it's attributed to me. And people often still today blame me for these things. Um, cover exploit, I, I get blamed for a lot. Um, cream exploit, I get blamed for a lot. Um, even though, you know, the, the, the parts of code I wrote weren't actually exploited. And, and, and this is something I, I don't really care to, to talk about, but, but since we're on the topic, I actually want to mention it. You know, even Yearn's exploit, that wasn't my code. Code that was written, that was exploited on Yearn was Yearn v2, which I was not involved in that development cycle with. But people obviously blame me for that exploit. So, you know, now there's, there's a, a sector of the social world, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, that, that firmly believes that I am this you know, malicious entity trying to exploit people for, for wealth and money. When, when the irony is, you know, I've had, I've had two exploits. I've had eminence, which the only reason I managed to consolidate that in my mind is the fact that, you know, that was part of my usual cycle. Like people shouldn't have been throwing money into that. They shouldn't have been going into it. Like I did not tell people to, I did not publish, even, even with Wi-Fi and everything else, you know, I always published the contract addresses when I was happy with it. I mean, if you go look mm. on chain, I think there's like 13 Wi-Fis as I was busy, you know, still like trying to decide how I wanted this mm. thing to go. Um, oh, three, actually. Then there was a, there was a, a, a zap into a curve pool I did that didn't have slippage checks and that caused horrible slippage. Um, and that was like back in like, I think a month or two into me doing yearn and early 20, jeez, mm -hmm. what year are we even in now? 22 to, so yeah, that was early 2020. 20. Um, yeah, it was early 2020, yeah. 
um yeah uh, anyway man so so it's interesting but you know like um i i I try and live by by a basic a base philosophy which is don't take criticism from people you wouldn't take advice from Mm. um and you know when when a non-134 xoxo on twitter tells me i'm this horrible piece of shit because i you know stole all of this money then it's it's very easy for me to 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 rationalize like would i ask this guy for advice no so i'm just going to ignore it um and you know the people i would ask for advice um they 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 know the sector they know the industry they know the people they they have the history of what actually happened so so it it helps but um it's it's heavy needing to deal with this like garbage like every day 24 7 it doesn't stop um yeah, I don't really know what advice there is to give to people there, but like you, you, you have to like like I wrote this in a few of those building into five socks blog posts, which were really yeah. just therapy sessions for myself. Um, you know, you 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 have to hate yourself a little bit because um, because it's it's I, I I mean if you launch a token and it's successful, then good for you. Um, you know that'll probably be super rewarding. Um, I know a lot of rich people that I've spoken to and like from what I've seen, it doesn't really seem that money makes people really happy. So uh, I don't know. Um, like, like I, I, from, from the big traders and whales and things I've interacted with, uh, I actually seem to think that the wealthier they get, the more depressed they get. Um, I, I, I think you think there's kind of get like to a that bell curve. Yeah. You know, at a certain yeah. point, it's not like the diminishing returns actually go negative. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, you, you, I, I, what, what I've seen with a lot of them is they're like, okay, when they get to this number, you know, they're going to be happy. And then they get to that number and then they're like, well, shit, it's still not nice. And then they set a new target. And then eventually they just realize no amount in the world is actually going to help them. Um, yeah okay this talk is going into a much more depressing <laughs> I, I hadn't expected to go this way either. flip this a little bit <laughs> sure thing that is, that is definitely a deal uh so pull, pulling it back a bit maybe i'll go back to the to the reading code part um you mentioned that when you were working on yearn so uh, you spent a lot of time because yearn is essentially integrating with any DeFi platform mm. that that trusts and can integrate with you ended up reading a lot of code um how much like how much code reading would you say like you generally do in terms of reading other people's code bases and do you think that that's also kind of an integral part of being able to like write an innovative smart contract yeah i i think that's a must have um i my recommendation is probably like 90 to 10 like for 90 percent of the code you read you should be writing 10 percent um obviously it gets more difficult the longer you've been in the space because people write code kind of slower and slower and slower and because especially now people are more and more afraid to release new things um but yeah i was i was spending the majority of my time just reading code um it's 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 a little bit of a catch-22 because you have to read a little bit code a little bit read a little bit code a bit a little bit you can't just read code for six months and then think you're going to know what you're doing because you kind of you kind of have to uh, a lot of the times code I wrote was just to try and see if I could do something differently. Like I would read through some of these code bases and, you know, typical coder scenario, you go through someone else's code. You're like, what the fuck's going on here? This doesn't make sense. They 
do it this way. I, I am so much smarter than, than they are. I am now going to recode it this way. And then you recode it that way. And then it breaks. And then you start hacking and slashing until eventually you kind of get to something that looks like their original code. And then you have that aha moment. And you're like, ah, OK, that's why they coded it that way. Um, but you know, personally, that's just part of sort of my learning process is I have to, I have to dissect it that way. Um, but yeah, I even today, you know, I spend more time reading other code bases than I spend writing code bases. Um, that's that's how you learn. That's how you see new patterns. That's how you learn new things. Um, and and especially in the current state of this space, you know, resources are scarce. Like like there's there's not a lot of published material. There's no solidity in 24 days book you can pick up. There's even the hello world examples don't really exist. So your best place to learn is other people's code. Um, and I think that's also a very good way, uh, especially in terms of patterns, because that's something that I think becomes very important in this space is is it, it, it's something that you easily neglect in centralized system, but execution ordering becomes so important, you know, because just using a transfer from before you do a deduction versus a transfer from after you do a deduction, that's the difference between an exploit on that contract. Um, and, and, and those are things that you don't necessarily even realize, but as you read other people's code who, who do know the reasons they're doing that, like it almost starts to subconsciously happen with you as well. Because when you start coding, a lot of it is also just copy pasting other like people's stuff that you see you like and like throwing that into a file and then kind of working from there. Um, so, so I also think it's safer when you, you work off of other people's code bases that is live, that is in production, that is currently available. Because, I mean, one thing we've seen in the space, you know, changing one line in someone else's production code can cause an exploit. Um, adding one asset that they don't have, but you think it's cool to add can end up causing an exploit. Like, like these, these parts are, are actually so fragile when they interact with each other that it's important to base your things off of other people's code, to reuse code that you see. Um, and the only way you can do that is by, is by going through other people's code, reading it, understanding it, seeing code snippets. Um, I, I often find myself, you know, um, as I'm busy writing something new, then I'll, I'll be thinking of a function I need to do and I'll be like, oh, right, wait, no, I actually saw this in ABC's peripheral contract that they were doing. And then I'll go look that up, find it, put it in, um, act. Mm -hmm slash it together and keep going from there. So, so, so very important. Definitely one of my, normally my starting point advice to people, um, I tell them, you know, go, go through the big code bases. Um, Compound is a nice, easy one to understand. Um, Avas V1, very nice to go through as well. Their V2, I normally don't recommend for people because they, they they almost over optimized. You know, it's it's to the point where where for, if you're if you're a new coder coming in, there's going to be a lot of stuff uh -huh. you don't understand. You know, like, like mm. they use they use bit shifts to store values in like their parameters because it's cheaper and gas than having individual variables. But it means it's really difficult to understand for a new user. So that I normally don't recommend. Uniswap mm. v2 I recommend. V3 again I don't recommend because the amount of just like knowledge you need to understand how the tick math and stuff works is is excessive versus v2 is very easy to understand and it reads very elegantly mm. 
Um, DYDX, while they were still, you know, on ETH, um, that code base was phenomenal. Um, it's it's a little bit sad they're off of it now. Um, what are other ones I normally recommend? Yearn V1, I normally recommend to people. V2, again, you know, it's 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 really well engineered code, but it is you know, it, it's difficult to see how it flows and where these strategies sit and how they piece into because it's a lot more modular. It's a lot more um, you know, pieces that fit together versus V1 was static, flat files done. What's happening in that file is the only thing that happens. So mm -hmm. that's easy to understand. Um, and those are normally the ones I recommend for people to, to, to sort of get their teeth into. And then, you know, from there, you'll, you'll go down the rabbit hole and start finding um, threads to, to other code bases. And, you know, mm -hmm. especially, especially if you find the niche you're interested in, you know, if you like AMMs, you're going to be spending a lot of time reading Bancor's code, reading Uniswap's code, reading um, SushiSwap's modifications, all of those kinds of things. But if you like lending, you're going to be spending your time, you know, on Compound and Aave and um, what was that other one? Fulcrum. Um, I think they changed their name. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, and, and, you know, you yeah. just expand from there. Interesting. These days, how do you find new code to read? Is there like kind of a pipeline you have for discovering new code? Um, a lot of it is just when I see new projects popping up, um, then I just go look at their code. Um, so like I'm, I'm quite deep into the whole like Olympus pro code base right now, like the bonds, the rebasing, all of that stuff. Um, I'm busy having a look at because, you know, it's not stuff I've used in my stack. So it's interesting. Um, option things pop up, then you have like, like, um, open or hedgic and then you start going through that rabbit hole but but like the the best the best source of news is still i'd say crypto twitter at this point um mm -hmm. you know obviously it depends on who you follow but but that's normally the the, the soonest signaling of new projects um and then once you see that you quickly go dig in you see is this a fork is it real isn't it something else um so so that's probably my primary pipeline so not very structured um as things come up i i head into it but you know again it, it changes a lot depending on if you're new into the ecosystem versus if mm -hmm. you've been here now for almost like three plus years developing solidity which i i think is is a a claim not a lot of people can make um so once once you're this deep you you do start sort of struggling to find new sources because there's only so much new code coming out mm -hmm. um what I often do then is, is I start heading over to, to but now this is me personally, I, I start heading over to, to other blockchain ecosystems. So, you know, I'll read some of the Rust crates from the Solana guys, or I'll go read some um, Go modules from the Cosmos guys. Um, but I mean, then, then it's less about trying to learn solidity and more looking at, you know, what's, what's the new financial primitives, what's the new finance concepts. Um, because one thing, one thing that does become important is, you know, the, the code is, is actually the easy part. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of pitfalls you need to be aware of. It's very, very easy to make a mistake and lose money, even though it doesn't look like a mistake. But, but the writing the code part, at a, there's, there's that initial upskilling point. But once you know it, it's, it's the same. You, you know, it's, it's still just for loops, is loops. I don't think I've ever used a while statement. Um, which is in, in, in solidity yeah, or ever. <laughs> yeah, in solidity. 
Um, no, no, I, 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 I used to be obsessed with my while statements because I just hacked them together with a random break, you know, and then you keep doing stuff until you get an answer. But um, you're so you're so sensitive on execution cycles and gas usage yeah. and all of that stuff. So like even even a for loop is something I I don't really use. Like if I can't do it in if, then I probably want to restructure how my code looks. But you know mm -hmm. that's also something that happens later in your cycle uh, because when you get into it, you're still used to execution is cheap, you know, because because you built whatever scripts on whatever centralized system. So there's no overhead if you if your thing runs. And I mean, your chances of running out of memory is you know unlikely. But now you get into this environment, and all of a sudden you you have a gas limit, you have a cap. Um, the more you use, the more expensive it gets. But gas golfing is something you get used to later down the line. You don't have to worry it at the start. Um, but, but point being, you know, there's, there's only so much to learn about the Solidity or Viper language. And then after that, the rest is, is financial knowledge. It's understanding mm -hmm. what are financial primitives. It's understanding what is collateral, what is lending. I mean, when, when I got into the space, I didn't know the difference between buy and sell on a spot exchange. I didn't know what spot meant. Um, I, 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 I hadn't done exchange stuff. Um, I, I did come from a banking background. So, so we had done lending, um, which I was quite familiar with. And we'd done insurance, which I was familiar with. But we, we never did trading or any of that stuff. So um, leverage, perps, derivatives, options, futures, you know, none of these terms I, I understood coming in. Mm -hmm. And I think my biggest roadblock was probably trying to understand all of these financial primitives and financial terms. Um, but but one thing there's there's definitely a crossroad between between code and finance when it comes into the blockchain ecosystem. Like it doesn't have to be. Like I've done projects that have no financial stuff in it, uh, um, and those are often the most gratifying. Um, like Rarity, you know that that little D and D MMO thing I wrote on on. Phantom. Phantom. I, I, yeah. I so badly want to get back to that because that's probably like the happiest I've been coding in a long time. But you know, it's mm -hmm. a hobby project and there is more pressing stuff that that needs like to get out of the pipeline because there's there's actual financial value connected to those. Um, but you know, point being every so often you you can code something just for fun in the space, but 90% of the stuff is probably going to be at that intersection of finance and code. Um, not not necessarily mathematics. Because I, I originally assumed it needs deep mathematical knowledge, which it doesn't really, because you know, a, a buy and a sell is really just a plus and a minus, and a leverage is a multiple multiplication. So, so like the math you use is very, very simplistic. Mm -hmm. um, un unless you start hitting towards like trying to understand like curve finances math, like Mitch, that's black magic. I have no idea what's going on there. It's it's wizardry. Um, mm. that's a different story, you know, then mm. if, if, if you go down that, I mean, in, in my defense, he is a literal, like, I think quantum physicist and a rock star yeah. scientist. So, so I think we're, we're allowed to, to just say his stuff is math. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so, so I think if I were to give advice for people coming to the space, it's read our code bases, learn the nuances and learn finance. If, if you have those, if you have those things underneath your belt, um, just try and not be too scared to deploy stuff. I, I, I think that's probably a big prohibitive for a lot of people coming to the spaces. You know, even if you have the idea, even if you have the skill set, you've, you've, you've written the code, you've gone through it a hundred times, it is still terrifying to deploy it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How did you get over the financial barrier? You mentioned that you had the background for lending, but not for, um, but not for other things. 
Um, so how did you get, get yourself an education just to become familiar with like the basic financial concepts, primitives, like what they are and how do you, how do you use them? Really just like lots of hitting my head against the wall. Um, I, I, going back, I think I could have just done a course on like financial literacy or something. I think it could have been pretty straightforward. Um, I, 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 I just kind of banged my head against whatever I ran into at the time. Um, and you know, it's, it's, I, I always go through the same thing where we start a new field, like it feels completely um, like, like a mammoth task that you're trying to go on here. You're like, there's just too much information. I don't know what's going on. You read and you read and you read and like your brain starts straining later on and it's just fuzzy and you don't know what's going on. But you go to bed, you wake up the next day, you do it again a little bit, and you feel the same. And a few weeks later, all of a sudden, you're, you, you have that aha moment and the stuff just makes sense. Um, trading, I, most of that stuff I learned through, through like going through Uniswap code and those kinds of things. Um, lending, I had the background, so that was all right. Um, perps is something I still haven't fully got on my head around. Um, I understand it conceptually, but if you ask me to code one, probably not. Um, options, when I got involved with um, Hedgic and working with, with Molly, she really taught me a lot um, on, on those things. I mean, I didn't know the difference between a call and a put um, when, when I started working there. Um, my goal with that was actually just codifying some more mathematic primitives on chain because I wanted things like Black-Scholes um, and calculations like that so that you can actually do better style pricing for if there is an options market. Um, that quote's also actually quite cool. I'm quite proud of that, actually. Um, I don't think it's used anywhere in production, but it's really cool code. Um, but yeah, like, like, like if, if I were to go back, I would definitely have told myself, look, just go do some 30-day online financial literacy thing, mm -hmm. just so you understand these high-level terms, at least. Um, because once, once you grasp the concepts, you know, they're not difficult. Like, it's not... It's not rocket science, but it just feels very daunting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you some general questions also, mm. just kind of about platforms and building in the space. Um, how decentralized, in your opinion, should a platform be? Just like a very open-ended question, obviously depends on the platform, but well, I, I'm well, curious well, for you. Yeah. So, so my general recommendation, especially for new stuff is, like, like when it's a new thing you launch, have as many backdoors and safety measures that only require your execution as possible. Um, because with new code, untested, you don't want to launch a product and then there's an, a live exploit happening that you can prevent and now you have to try and get a bunch of multi-sig signers together. That's, that's murder. Mm -hmm. um, once, once there's an amount of financial value in there that actually starts putting you at risk of a wrench attack, you know, that's time you need to start looking at like at least getting a multi-sig or something in there. But personally, I also think the multi-sig is just a stopgap until you can refine the processes. And once you have those processes, codify them on chain, and then that's the system. But now I'm, I'm also a, a firm believer in immutability. Like I think that's a feature, it's not a bug. So when I see proxy pattern and these things, it, it, it hurts me, like they shouldn't exist. Again, when you're a new project, it's fine, but 
as as the financial value grows in that thing, you want less and less and less control because your your personal risk increases with the financial value of that system. So if you can upgrade those proxy contracts, then you know, then you're at a risk. And even even if it's a multi-sig, you know, like it, let's say there's six signers on that multi-sig, if there's enough financial value in there, someone's going to coordinate an attack to get to all six of those people like like the numbers might not be big enough now but the numbers are going to get big enough so mm -hmm. so to me it's it's not so much actually about protocols need to be decentralized to me it's protocols need to make their builders safe mm -hmm. um and and decentralization happens to go hand in hand into that you know because because mm -hmm. the more decentralized the less you can do um, and that was always my perspective. And, you know, that, that echoes well if you look at sort of the regulatory framework as well, where, where if there's something you can change, at some point a regulator is going to force you to change that. So it's also yeah. good to not have that um, capability. But, mm -hmm. but I also don't believe that full decentralization from the start is the smartest thing. Because I think mm -hmm. that's when you expose more risk. That's when you create more potential things to go wrong. Um, and, and uh, another reason why I'm a little bit against that is because the thing that you might launch day one is not the thing it might end up being day 60. Uh -huh. So a lot of the things you're going to learn might be also processes you can refine a little bit. But you know, once, once it's been running for three months, six months, whatever your timeline is, and you haven't been required to do anything, it's time to burn your key is get rid of the multi-sigs, like codify those patterns, like none of that stuff needs to have people involvement anymore. Mm. Um, oh, that's, that's another interesting thing, right? Because, because for a lot, of, uh, a lot of my projects especially is like, that is my philosophy. So I like deploying it this way. I like making it immutable. I like getting it to a point where I no longer have any involvement with it. Now, to me, that's also when I'm allowed to move on to something new. Because again, I am an R&D guy. I am a prototyper. I, I will get bored if I'm doing the same thing for too long. Mm -hmm. But now, especially in this industry, you know, there's, there's this, this stigma of the team that have to be involved in the token. And if the team go away, then the token has no value, blah, blah, blah. E e even though the platform that accrues that value might still be the exact same thing, you know? Um, but but, but there's, there's, there's a mental stigma around that, that I, I just want people to be aware of. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, ideally, I mean, all of the systems I try and design, I try and design under the, the sort of Ouroboros principle, you know, like, like it needs to accrue fees, those fees need to go to holders, holders need to provide their voting or whatever it is value into the system. And it, sh it should be the flywheel loop that's just going to keep running in eternity. Uh, you know, you, you might need to bootstrap it with a token at the start where your emissions are higher than your fees accrued. But your eventual goal is always where those two offset each other into a, a zero sum or ideally positive sum situation versus when you started and it's a negative sum, like, like any business, you know, mm -hmm. when you start, it's mostly expenses until you grow to a point where your profits exceeded. Um, and, and so this is also an interesting thing now, because if we take it back to the, the, the discussion on decentralization, a truly decentralized system won't have a team because It'll operate in its own existence. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to update. There's nothing to change. There's no new rollouts. That is the system. So I, I always find it fascinating when, when like, um, you know, people 
token holders or speculators or whatever you want to call them are, are like shouting for decentralization when I know for a fact they're the ones going to be screaming when it is decentralized and the original builders go, look, there's nothing we can do here. Like we can't assist. So yeah. we, we, we can either just sit here staring at the thing, doing literally nothing, or we can move on to something else. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's like, uh, there, there are, there are cross-breed solutions. So what I mean by that is um, maybe OpenSea is a good example because, you know, uh, actually maybe not because what I wanted to say there is, you know, they have off-chain components. As long as there are off-chain components, right. you're never going to be decentralized because you're going to have those off-chain components. Um, mm. But truth be told, most of the stuff happens on their contract. So actually if someone else can attach, if they actually, you know, open and verify and um, allow like third-party documentation, anyone else can actually build a UI on top of that as well. So, mm. so that's maybe not an example, but I, I, I can't think particularly of any now, but, but there are you know, examples of when decentralization kills the business model. And if decentralization kills the business model, that's not something you should be pursuing. But if your goal isn't to be decentralized, one, don't try and act like it's going to be. That really pisses me off when people do that. And two, make sure that then you fit within whatever regulatory framework you need to fit in because you need to then take that responsibility i i think a lot of people try and sort of sit in that middle ground where they're like well we're a blockchain project so we don't need to register for whatever law they need to register i'm like no no you do you're not decentralized so shut up um <laughs> but but yeah like 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 you said originally you know it's not a it's not a it's not a black and white answer i think me personally, I always want fully decentralized because that's the point when I can go, okay, bye. I'm going to start something new now. Thanks, guys. Um, mm. But I never try to launch fully decentralized um, because A, um, risk. B, um, you don't know what it's necessarily going to be. Um, and any, any founder that thinks the first thing they launch is going to be the absolute perfect thing they launch are completely insane. And you should not be following them in any case, um, mm. because everyone knows it's an iterative process to actually find what fits, what works, what success. And even the thing you deploy day one might not be the thing that is even the, the thing that finds product market fit. Um, so, so, so yeah, I think my recommendation there is when the financial value grows to the point where your personal safety starts getting at risk, look towards decentralization, um, where it starts growing to the point where it puts the whole team at risk, look towards full decentralization. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, personally, I, I think that's sort of the, the path people need to take. Um, yeah. Maybe one last question then, because I, I know we're coming up on time now. Um, what would you say, looking at today's DeFi ecosystem, what do you think are the things that are either the most missing or alternatively, what do you think are the most innovative things coming up in DeFi right now? Mm, if I knew that, I would be building that stuff. So, <laughs> um, mm. you know, um, we, a lot of people seem to think we need on-chain perps. Um, a lot of people seem to think we need on-chain leverage. I don't necessarily think that's necessary. I think there are centralized tools that allow that. So, you know, that's, that's not, that to me isn't a new primitive. That's stuff that exists and we're just trying to replicate it on-chain. Um, I, I think we've seen a lot of, like, like the phase we're in now, we're not seeing as much new products. We're seeing variations on existing products. Um, nothing wrong with that. But 
I mean, I can't really recall the last big innovative step we had. Um, you know, like like when we introduced AMMs or Uniswap did their AMM, Compound did their lender, um, mm -hmm. Yearn did yield aggregation, um, one inch did um, trade aggregation. You, you know, like like these were like big new things that happened, and and now we're seeing variations on existing ideas. Mm -hmm. um, probably more finesse there, more tweaking. We'll we'll see in the sort of the short term, um, medium to long term. So so uh, again, everything works kind of cyclic. You know, like like a lot of the things that we we have today and we use today are things that were conceptualized three years ago but three years ago the tech wasn't there to pull it off you you mm. couldn't build it you know like like a a yearn couldn't exist until there was lenders you know so mm. so each time something needs to happen for the next thing to happen and and we're we're now again i'd say in in sort of a a a point where the, the application layer has caught up to the base layer. So when I say that dApps have caught up to the layer one, and now the layer ones need to sort of upgrade again slash adapt again so that their capacity grows again so mm. that the next wave of stuff happens. You know, Smartphones, if you look at them today, um, couldn't exist when the first smartphones came out because the technology simply was there. We, we couldn't, you know condense the amount of equipment and stuff that we can now it was bigger blah 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 so so that in itself is a big difference mm -hmm. um so so probably more of the same sort of experimenting until there's this new let's say capacity available from the base layers um and once we get that new capacity available from the base layers i think we're going to start seeing more traditional applications decentralizing so so what i mean there is you know social networks something like a decentralized twitter i mean maps something like a decentralized google maps i mean gaming um you know decentralized world of warcraft whatever it is like like those things can't exist now with the existing layer one technology but they will be able to as we have like um bespoke whatever you want to call it shards parachains zk rollups doesn't matter what it is but you know then that can start existing there and um mm. and and then we sort of start seeing the next wave of things that are going to to happen i i, I think also a little bit of a problem there currently is that our our anti-spam mechanism currently is payment right and mm -hmm. and we so so as as we start seeing more refined civil tools as well we can start looking towards layer ones that can use civil mechanics to prevent spamming instead of financial incentive to stop spamming and once you have that mm -hmm. then all of a sudden social networks also make sense you know because like i don't want to pay even if it's one cent i don't want to pay one cent every time i send someone a telegram like i'm just not going to use that system mm -hmm. um but if it's as simplistic as a as a civil mechanism that prevents you spamming the network, then all of a sudden that starts making real viable sense. Mm -hmm. So so I think and and you know like if you look at the civil stuff that's coming out of like Gitcoin and that Awaki and all of them are doing like like they're doing phenomenal work there, and then obviously you start looking at the at the zk and the rollup stuff that's happening, um, Starkware, Arbitrum, Optimism, etc. And like like great work coming out there, but you know that's that's all all of 
that tech is where Ethereum was early 2016, 2017, you know, like, like it's there now, mm. but now people need to start actually putting those pieces together and start building on it so that we can see that next iteration of software. Cause, cause I do think the future is a, is a fully decentralized, uh, not necessarily decentralized. What's, what's the word I'm looking for? Fully distributed um, solution. Mm. Um, but at least for the next few months and in the short term, I think probably a little bit more of the same. And then when that next capacity spike happens, that opens up the new things, then then I see we're gonna then I think we're gonna see a nice big boom again. Great. Andre, it's been great having you here. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Likewise, my man. It was a um it's definitely been a slightly sporadic chat, but um <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. <laughs>